Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome everyone to Sonic's Flight. This is episode 15, Sonic's Acrobatics, or more accurately, flying basic aerobatics in your Sonics. This episode, we're going to explore the ins and outs of flying aerobatic maneuvers in a Sonics or YX. We're going to talk about the types of maneuvers that are appropriate for a Sonics, and we're going to go over tips on a few specific maneuvers and talk to some experienced Sonics pilots about flying acro. I'm your host, Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. And joining me as always are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. John flies his YX from eastern Colorado at his air park home, living the dream out there. And is best known for his custom modifications, including his tilt-back canopy, his speed cowl, his engine modifications, uh, and his very cool vinyl-wrapped airplane. John, what have you been up to lately? Actually, I'm, uh, the plane is down for annual, so I'm um, trying to get it back together and get flying again. All right, so when do you think that's going to be? Uh, I know you tend to oh, get a little wonky at annual time. Um, you know, once you, once you start pulling the plane apart for annual, you start looking at things that you can improve, and uh, the, the baffling is my, my latest project. I'm redoing the entire baffling of the engine, so I'll probably go back into phase one for that, so... But that, that, I, I should be back in the air by Saturday. Yeah, I have a little bit of baffling I need to play with as well. Um, I still have a hot middle cylinder, and it's not bad, but it's about 50 degrees warmer than my others, and so I'd like to do something about that. Well, good to see you're getting after it. And Gary Motley. Gary flies his Aero V-powered Sonics Hound Dog. He flies out of Denver, Colorado, and is constantly flying somewhere or another, um, maybe not in the wintertime. Gary, what have you been up to? Oh, trying to get a little mountain flying in when it's not blowing at 50, 60 miles an hour. Yeah, that makes it a little bit too exciting, huh? Yeah, it, it does, yeah. I, my, my head can only stand so much pounding on the top of the canopy. <laughs> All right, well, good deal. I'm glad you're, uh, you're getting out of here. It's been a little bit rough for me this winter, but uh, the weather's already improving, and we got more daylight, and so I'm looking forward to getting back and racking up a few more hours. Well, joining us tonight is our guest, Mark Kingman. Mark completed Sonic's 1304. He finished that in 2011 and has flown it for nearly 500 hours. Mark is a retired military aviator, starting first in F-15s in the Air Force, and then I guess that wasn't enough fun, so he got out and transitioned to helicopters in the Army. And he's currently flying uh, his day job for uh, EMS helicopters in uh, western Kansas. So, uh, Mark, uh, he knows a thing or two about maneuvering flight and uh, likes to regularly fly acro in his Sonics. Mark, how you doing? Just great. Just great. Glad to be here. So, I guess the obvious uh, question which we're going to have to get back to is, how much does a fighter pilot training program translate into a Sonics? You don't have to answer that entirely right now. Just think about that. Uh, well... You know, the the uh, Air Force was my uh, introduction to aerobatics, especially in pilot training. Uh, you actually did aerobatic maneuvers for the sake of doing aerobatics. Uh, and uh, 
I had uh, time before I'd flown some charter and was a flight instructor before I went into the Air Force. So, uh, but the Air Force was my first introduction. Well, very cool. Well, we'll get into that here in just a minute. But uh, before we do, let's um, let's hit this news topic. So on the uh, sonicsbuilder.net discussion forum, there was a, a post just recently about the NTSB releasing a factual report on a crash that happened back in 2014. This was in the Big Bear, California area. Uh, have you guys been following this? Did you read the factual report? Yes, I, I did. I did scan it, too. I did, too. Okay. All right, good. So, Gary, since you're our, uh, our resident AeroV high-altitude um, expert, why don't you uh, give us the, the rundown on, on the accident, set it up for us, and kind of hit the main points. Well, I... A little hard to do that. I mean, there was just a couple of things I did notice. He did have a a, a VW-powered Aero V in, in the Sonics. So that's 80 horsepower. It appeared, if I remember correctly, the field elevation was something like 6,700 feet. Um, I don't believe that also includes in the density altitude as well. Uh, there and this was, was in concern. July. Yeah, there was some concern, yeah. too, on looking at some plugs that they pulled and when they were doing compression checks and rotating cranks and all, one of the cylinders was, was carbon filed a little bit, which they thought could have indicated it was running a little bit rich. Um, I do know from, you know, lots of personal experience flying out here in Colorado, my field elevation is only about 5,600. But of course, when you add the, the temperature in there, the density altitudes can easily start hitting 8,000 feet uh, just to take off. I'm fortunate in my particular field because I have a runway that's paved and flat and about you know nine thousand feet long, so so more than adequate. Uh, I do have to say though the climb rates at these density altitudes in the AeroV is fairly anemic. Uh, I'm probably looking on a good day, maybe about three hundred feet or so on on a day like that at best, and that's with just me and uh, and a reasonable flight bag. Uh, if a gentleman's going to do cross-country, it's most likely he had quite a bit more in there as well. If he wasn't real careful on trying to get the maximum performance with uh, leaning the engine as well, that can certainly create problems. Uh, leaning only does so much, though, for the AeroV, in my personal opinion, as far as increasing the power. Sure, you'll get a few hundred extra, maybe, well, I won't say a few hundred extra RPMs. You might get a hundred or so extra RPMs. But it still doesn't uh, translate much into an improved climb weight. You just really have to be cognizant of the density altitude and your loadings and and terrain factors and, you know, you know what's your best plan of action to negotiate any terrain or, or to be able to escape from a situation. I know personally that I had originally built my Sonics as a uh, dual control. Uh, I did try to take a couple of people, maybe about three times. Uh, the last time I tried to take my fiancé up, I got to pattern altitude and just went right back and told her I'd tell her about it when I got her on the ground, but just didn't have, just did not have any excess power at all. Since that time, I've pulled out the dual controls and just put a single stick and just fly as a as a as a big Bubba One X in my Sonex because you just realistically can't take two people at these kind of density altitudes in an AeroV. Okay, John, uh, when you were reading through here, what what things jumped out at you on this um, this factual report? Well, it's exactly what Gary had said. Um, I've actually flown with Gary. Um, you know, we we've taken off together from his uh, airport, which is about a thousand feet lower than mine. I have the, uh, the Jabiru 3300 and to, to just, if, if Gary's ahead of me and I have to throttle back 
to just stay on his uh, on his wing. Um, you know, I know Gary's climbing as best rate as he can, and it is discomforting on on the climb rate. And so, you know, I'm basically detuning my my Jabiru to match his. And uh, I can understand if this guy uh, had tried to take off with a full tank and had gear, and it was probably a gross, um, from that el- airport. And we actually fly a little higher. Um, you know, our density altitudes are typically 8,000 to 9,000. In the summer, up to 10,000. Um, it would have been a, a quite a quite a task to keep that airplane near. Especially the rising terrain. I mean, if if I take off from my pattern altitude and go east, uh, by the time I hit Mark's altitude, I'm about you know four thousand feet above ground without climbing. Well, and to, to demonstrate an extreme situation, um, I took my wife up to Leadville, Colorado, the highest airport in North America. Uh, field elevation is just under ten thousand feet. Uh, it was fifty four degrees outside. Density altitude was over thirteen thousand feet. And my wife and I took off uphill into the terrain. And I literally was worried about hitting trees um, with my Jabiru, trying to nurse that airplane into the air. Once we were able to make the turn down the, the valley, you know, things got better. We got up to 12,000 feet and we were fine. And we shot over the range. But it's that there's a, there's a definite window Right after you take off and at the end of that runway, that wow, it's it's touch and go at high density altitude. Yeah, we've been reading a lot, and you know, you see some of the stuff through Air Safety Foundation with the AOPA as well. And you know, for those people who might be instrument rated as well, or even if they're not, um, there are a lot of uh, airports, especially in mountainous terrains, might have something called an obstacle departure procedure, uh, which can give you clues to and perhaps the best way to to manage terrain and, and perhaps routing to go or initial headings and something like that too might be, might be useful for people to start trying to look over a little bit, especially at unfamiliar airports. We seem to have a lot of uh, off-field uh, landings down at uh, Meadow Lake Airport at KFLY, um, which is at just under 10 or 7,000 <laughs> feet, um, especially in the summer. And it's mostly transient pilots that uh, fill up their planes with gas they take off and they just can't get out of ground effect and they end up putting down the field. You know, there's another thing that, that kind of jumps out at me and that's that this guy had just bought the airplane. So he was completely unfamiliar two days prior. So whatever kind of transition familiarization training he got from the, from the seller, that's all the experience he had. So he, he jumps in and he immediately puts himself in a situation where he really needs to fly that airplane perfectly under those conditions. They're challenging conditions for anybody. And I think that maybe the lack of experience um, may have been really the deciding factor that kind of set him up for this accident. Yeah, I, w- I would say that um, those of us who do typically fly out of high-density altitude airports, we have uh, we almost a, a second nature of nursing the plane along during that transition time of – uh, leaving the runway and getting to at least pattern altitude. Mm-hmm. I believe this uh, this uh, pilot was from Ohio, was he not? And uh, so he's probably not used to uh, high density altitude uh, takeoffs. Um, some things, of course, you can do are uh, 
leaning the mixture. Um, we had an accident uh, when I was flying out of uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is relatively high. It's like 4,100 feet, uh, where a pilot uh, took off with on only one magneto. So it could have been a mag problem uh, contributing to everything as well. In the NTSB docket, they showed uh, all the different things that the, the investigators looked at. One of them was the GPS track from his Garmin handheld GPS that was recovered. And if you look at it, he, he filled up his airplane, he had breakfast, uh, all that, and then he taxied from the ramp over to departure. It took him about five minutes to make that taxi. He rolled right out onto the runway and then immediately tried to take off. He got to about 45 knots and then aborted his first takeoff. Uh, now, we don't know why he aborted. Was the engine running rough? Maybe he didn't lean. Maybe he could sense that there was a power problem. Or maybe he was starting to kind of heat soak the engine a little bit, and he was getting a little bit of rough running. Uh, but I guess the point is that he he had some sort of problem that he didn't like, and so he aborted, and then he went back around for another another shot at it. So once again, he taxied back to the departure on the runway, um, rolled right out onto the runway, and immediately started his takeoff. This time he got airborne, got to one or two hundred feet, and was immediately over the lake. And he flew kind of the length of the lake at that low altitude, 100, 200 feet. And if you look at his speed and his altitude, it took him about three minutes to fly across the length of the lake. And he only climbed maybe 100 feet in that three minutes of of flying. And the whole time, he was in the 60 to 65 knot range, which to me says that he's just hunting for that best angle of attack to try to nurse whatever kind of climb he can. Then he gets to the end of the lake. And he sees rising terrain. He's out of room. And so rather than turn back in towards the lake, he aims for the upriver draw, trying to escape out of the bowl that the lake sits in. And that's when he just pulls us a little bit too much pitch and uh, and stalls it and then goes in. And so I, I think that if you kind of put yourself in the mind of the pilot, he, he is. He, he's attempting to nurse it, and he knows there's a problem. And he's trying to eke whatever performance he can but when he when he was confronted with that rising terrain, he just he he just pulled a little too much and got a little too slow, and, and then he lost it. I think it's sobering. Um, I I think that a lot of people could find themselves in a similar situation and faced with a similar choice. Without a, a lot of mental discipline and preparation, you can see how someone might do the exact same thing. You know, you really you really don't want to put this brand new airplane into the lake you don't want to have a, a slow controlled descent in the terrain and so you're trying to find that that razor edge where you can eat the last little bit of performance because maybe that'll be the the last bit that you need to escape the situation and everything will be okay but then you push it a little too far and then it all just unravels so quick you can't recover and i think that's what happened here well and, and jeff we see that over and over again in Colorado, um, especially transient pilots who aren't used to flying at high density altitudes and know, and and have you know really understood the degradation and performance of their aircraft um, at our altitudes, and uh, you know it, it just littered with them. We had a we had a, a, a Cherokee that took off from Metro, full. Um, they're heading to Moab for the weekend three people on board full of camping gear. They filled up with gas at Metro. The, even the, the attendant at the FBO said, are you sure you want to do that? He took off up the mountains and 
He ran out of juice at about 11,000 feet and couldn't get over the pass and ended up spinning it in. Well, the only other comment I might make, too, is, you know, you do have some terrain that is favorable there. If, if we talk about this lake, and again, I'd have to look at the, at the schematics and see, uh, you know, a lake is a pretty nice flat piece of ground. Uh, it may even be impossible to get back down. Of course, this would be hard to do for the most people that are uncomfortable with flying close to terrain. But get back down, try to see if you can pick up a little bit of ground effect in that, in that lake environment where it's nice, smooth, and flat. Uh, see if you can gain some airspeed and trade your, your, your altitude for airspeed and perhaps then be able to nurse it back up a little bit. Well, Gary, we know that's how you operate all the time. Mm, yeah, it's just kind of... I, I don't like doing that. It's not comfortable. <laughs> I'd rather have a bigger engine. Well, sure. <laughs> I'd rather have a bigger plane. That's why I'm building one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the number one takeaway for me is um, you got to think these things through in advance. You, you can't trust yourself to figure it all out literally on the fly. You got to think about this in advance. You got to be prepared for it. And you got to, you got to give yourself every opportunity to succeed by being practiced and ready and, uh, and not be taken by surprise. Cause if you get taken by surprise, it's perfectly understandable how it could just get away from you. Well, and, and Jeff, I, I think, you know, especially pilots who are fairly low lander pilots really need to understand the, uh, the degree of degradation of performance um, that you get at a high-density altitude airport. Um, you know, flying at 8,000 feet, all of us do that. But you're not landing and taking off at that altitude, typically. And so knowing how your plane's going to act at that level is really hard to do unless you actually can do it. Well, I think that uh, the best we can do is try to extract whatever learning points there is and, and share them amongst the community. So hopefully this will provide uh, some of that for, uh, for the rest of the Sonics pilots. They can, they can learn from this incident and, um, and hopefully not repeat it. Well, let's move on to the fun stuff of yanking and banking. All right. Well, um, so back to uh, Mark Kingman, our, our guest tonight. And uh, like I talked about earlier, Mark is a, uh, he's a retired military aviator. He is very experienced in a variety of different airplanes to include uh, very fast airplanes, very high-performance airplanes, more regular mundane airplanes, and helicopters. Uh, so, Mark, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your aviation background and, and kind of how you got into Asonics, and then uh, and we'll go from there. Okay. I uh, learned to fly, you know, soloed at 16 and private at 17 and uh, went on, got my ratings while I was in college. And started uh, flying charter and flight instruction while I was in college. And uh, I was commissioned in the Air Force uh, through ROTC and went uh, directly to pilot training uh, out of uh, college. Uh, so, uh, but I hadn't flown anything except single engine light airplanes uh, uh, up until that point. And uh, the transition into the Air Force was, uh, it was uh, quite a challenge. Uh, they have their own way of doing things. And and uh, just flying, I, at that time, I was flying uh, T-37s and T-38s, and uh, both of them don't feel like uh, light airplanes, uh, multi-engine jets. Pretty good performance, even the T-37 had uh, had good performance, great little aerobatic airplane, 
Uh, and that's, as I said before, where I uh, got my aerobatic uh, experience, uh, you know, and, and training was there. Um, after pilot training, I went to the uh, F-15 Eagle and flew uh, A models and C models of the F-15. I uh, did that out of Langley, uh, Virginia, uh, Holloman, New Mexico, uh, where uh, Alamogordo is, and, uh, and then Kadena, Okinawa. So pretty much got to fly uh, uh, all over the world. I went to Europe a couple of times uh, in the F-15 and uh, flew all over the uh, Far East uh, in Korea and the Philippines and so forth. Um, the, uh, you know, we, we didn't really do, in the F-15, we didn't really do aerobatics. Uh, we did things to put ourselves in a position to to uh, shoot somebody because the F-15 mission was uh, all uh, air to air. Uh, so uh, we would maneuver against other types of fighters and, uh, you know, you ended up doing a lot of aerobatic things or at a lot of unusual attitudes, but not for the purpose of just flying aerobatics. Uh, after the uh, Air Force, I uh, got a full-time job with uh, U.S. Airways and I flew there for uh, 17 years. Uh, and uh, so I flew uh, 737s and uh, Airbus A320s uh, there. And um, while I was doing that, uh, didn't ha quite have enough military uh, experience, so I joined the Army National Guard, and they taught me to fly helicopters. Uh, no aerobatics in helicopters, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> and... Uh, Especially the Huey, it's a teetering rotor system, and you don't uh, don't want to turn that upside down. Uh, the uh, but uh, I retired from the military, uh, retired from the airlines, and uh, the day I retired from the military was the day I started building my Sonics. Uh, you know, only had one job at that point, and uh, so it was uh, it was uh, you know I felt like I had a little bit more time. Uh, to uh, devote to building the airplane, uh, and uh, it took me two and a half years to build my Sonics. Uh, I built a uh, Jabiru 3300. Uh, it's a conventional gear, conventional tail, single stick, uh, and uh, you know I've just I've just really had a great time with the aircraft. Flown it to Oshkosh three four times now, and. Uh, the uh it's just been uh it's just been a great airplane basically just uh normal maintenance items i've i've worked on since uh uh since on the sonex uh i've continued to fly light airplanes the whole time i was in the air force and uh and uh and in the airlines as well just uh doing some part-time instructing in uh, cessnas and cherokees and and i still fly with the uh, uh, Civil Air Patrol, and I instruct uh, in uh, Cessnas and uh, and Pipers as well. So that's where I am. All right. Well, good deal. So as we kind of set up this uh, this whole topic of uh, Sonics Acro, um, just a few thoughts to kind of put this in the right frame. So, so why are we doing this? What are the goals of, of this whole discussion? Well, for me, it's really pretty simple. It's to encourage people to to really get to know their airplanes. Um, we talked about this at a lot of different times and and capacities, but I think that 
really understanding how to fly your airplane, getting familiar with the performance of it, knowing what to expect in various circumstances, really adds a, a level of safety and enjoyment to your project. And aerobatics are a great way to do that, to get really comfortable and familiar with your capabilities. I'd also like to give people a sense of what is possible in the Sonics, um, what are the common maneuvers that people are doing in them, and uh, and where the problems might be in, in doing some of those maneuvers. And then lastly, just just encourage people to get out there and uh, and just to, to go out there and, and do it, but in a safe way. So so with that lineup, let's uh, let's jump right in. So I think the first thing we want to talk about is is all the preparations that a person should do before they go out there and attempt to go fly uh, their their airplane in aerobatics. And the first one that that automatically comes to mind is training. So, Mark, you have a a good perspective on this. Um, What do you think the right level of training a pilot should should try and go get? Are we talking about an aerobatics course? Are we talking about a couple hours with a a knowledgeable instructor? What do you think the average sonics person ought to do when it comes to training for aerobatics? I think that uh, the uh, uh, pilot in his Sonex, before he does any aerobatics, if he hasn't done them before, my opinion would be that he uh, needs to go to an aerobatic school or an aerobatic instructor with a uh, Citabria or, uh, you know, anything uh, that uh, that's available uh, and get some unusual attitude, spin recovery, uh, and, you know, then practice uh, the uh, rolls and the loops and so forth. And not necessarily, you won't be proficient, but a lot of the schools I understand, you know, have like a, a, a five-hour course or a 10-hour course, something you could do in a week or two. Uh, and I think that would be uh, excellent preparation to uh, fly aerobatics in the Sonics. I might have a little comment, too, to make, Mark. I, I know that you're a current instructor. I used to teach a little bit as well. I don't currently mm-hmm. teach anymore. Um, I think we could probably even do something before we get to the point of doing the aerobatic instruction. Is I know when I used to do BFRs, for example, with the pilots, again, we had already mentioned that many times they, when someone does a stall or two or a little bit during their uh, their, their private pilot training after the check ride, they, they typically don't seem to practice them anymore. You know, I've always encouraged people to get really, really comfortable in slow flight, uh, get comfortable with uh, persistent stalls, kind of like the, the falling leaf kind of thing, Mark, you know, where you're just yeah. in a stall continuously from a high altitude down and down and down and down and just maintaining directional control with the rudder and just really getting used to that really slow environment to feel what the controls are like when they get really mushy right before they start to get the buffet to learning what the, what the aircraft responds to you and how it buffets and the, the sounds and sensations you get. I think that's probably even, even a, a better place to start with, to get really familiar with the Sonic's traits uh, before you start really trying to, to flip and fling it into some really unusual attitudes. Well, I think you're definitely right. And, you know, any aerobatic uh, course of instruction is going to start with those things, the stalls, the slow flight, uh, the uh, uh, spins, uh, unusual attitude recovery, any of them, that's probably what you're going to do your first hour. And then you move on to something, you know, to a little bit more complex things. Gary, I think that's a great point because you need to be able to 
really understand where the wing is uh, is flying. As you get close to that stall, you need to be able to see it and sense it. It needs to be very predictable. If you feel like you're going to be surprised by the airplane or you're a little bit uncomfortable or kind of have this series of like anticipation about a stall coming up, you're probably not quite ready to go and, and fly some aerobatics. You probably need to really focus on that, just like you're talking about. Get comfortable in slow flight. Learn to recognize when you're getting close to that stall. And then make sure that there is no trepidation as you get close to that that critical angle of attack. And then likewise on spins. If If you're not sure about spins or you're not sure about how to recover or any of that, you probably need to do that too. Because uh, when, when things go wrong in your aerobatics, those are the two things you're going to need to know more than anything. How to recover from that unusual attitude. Yeah, comfort level and being relaxed was important. If you if you look at the knuckles mark as you watch your students, and the knuckles get wider and wider, even when they're doing the simple maneuvers, you know they're hanging on way too tight, and exactly. they can't feel what the aircraft is doing. So you could save yourself a lot of time and money and just, like I said, just going out and getting nice high altitude and get down and start doing the minimal controllable airspeed and the turns and the minimal controllable airspeed and listen and feel and make sure your shoulders are relaxed, your biceps are relaxed, you got just fingertips. Because we know these Sonics, they only require fingertips to fly these things. Uh, they're certainly not like the Cessna. So, you know, just take it, you know, get to the point where you are comfortable and you're not breaking out in a sweat or even worried about it. And then you can go hit yourself up and get yourself a pits and do some real fun. Well, and one of the things I'd like to recommend, too, is understanding what the accelerated stall in the Sonics feels like. Um, you know, you start yanking and banking it, um, you'll st- feel that shudder well above your stall speed, you know, on your, on your instruments. And understanding what that is and what it's going to do to you um, is, is pretty, pretty nice to, to have that behind you before you throw it over the, over the top. Yeah, turning stalls, accelerated stalls, um, abrupt pullouts, uh, all that is part of uh, being able to fly those acro maneuvers safely. And so, like you said, Gary, if you get comfortable in those regimes, uh, you can really kind of set yourself up to take full effect of a, of a very short aerobatics instruction course. Essentially, show up with your homework already done, and that way you're ready to really get your money's worth. With the training piece out of the way, um, I think the next thing is you kind of kind of do a little bit of what I'm going to call mental rehearsal. Um, this is this is where you, you just kind of kind of got to get your game plan together. This is about scouting out your local area, figuring out where you're going to go, uh, what are the the best areas to maybe go out there and use as your as your practice area, and, and where do you want to avoid? And if you are out in your practice box and you kind of have scoped that out. Where are you going to go if there's a problem? There, there's a little bit of homework, and you probably just need to go out and kind of recon the area and identify that. John, when you fly, um, you know, you've got a, a wide variety of of areas that you can head for. But what do you look for when you're kind of going to go out and goof off? Well, right now, um, I have a international aerobatic guy at my airfield who has set up a uh, aerobatic practice box at the FAA three miles uh, east of my house. So I go there. Uh, prior to that, I just go out to, uh, the, you know, the typical practice area, um, climb up, uh, three or 4,000 feet above ground and then, uh, you know, do a couple of clearing turns and then go play. 
Uh, but right now, I just go into the act, the uh, aerobatic active box and uh, call on the radio frequency that it, it dictates that it's active and go play. Mark, how do you choose where you're going to go out and go play? Well, I, you know, just looking at the FARs, a uh, non-congested area. You can't be in Class B, C, or D airspace, of course. Uh, above 1,500 feet, daytime, three miles visibility. Uh, and I uh, also another thing that they put in the FARs is you have to be uh, outside of a federal airway. So, you know, look at a uh, chart, see where the Which airways are. Four miles either side. Exactly. Four miles either side of the center line of the uh, airway. And you're supposed to be outside of those also. Now, with GPS, everybody's going every which way. But the rules are still the rules. So, um, I, you know, when I started uh, to uh, test uh, aerobatics in my phase one, uh, early on, I, I scaled that all out, and, and uh, there's, a, there's an area that's probably three miles long and two miles wide. That's just about eight miles from my uh, airstrip, so uh, I can uh, get out there really fast, and I normally do my aerobatics also, like at 4,500 feet AGL, so not, I'm not pushing the bottom at all. And if anybody wants to see those FARs that Mark is referencing, that's uh, that's ninety one three hundred three. That that basically runs down the list that he gave. The other thing I like to look for is um, I want to know where am I going to go if I have a problem. So uh, if if your practice area has a nice landable spot in it, that's even better. So you're not sweating if you have an engine problem, you know, halfway through. Where are you going to go? Um, and then when I'm going to go out, I like to just take a three by five card or something and just to kind of jot down a few, a few notes, because when you're out there, you'll forget all kinds of stuff. You'll forget what did I want to do or what were the things I wanted to watch uh, or entry speeds. If you're going to go out and start experimenting with something. So it may spend pay to, to spend a little time and just kind of get mentally organized and maybe make a few notes that you're going to refer to when you're out there. So once you've got the, uh, the, the, the rehearsal and the training and you feel like you as the pilot are ready to go, uh, then you need to go out and you need to make sure your plane is ready to go. Um, and, and this is, there's a couple of things, but, but the first thing, the simplest thing is go clean the airplane. All those little things that are in there that, that are not a problem when you're just flying, uh, you know, from point A to point B uh, are going to become projectiles when you try to do your first loop. Uh, pens, maps. Uh, hardware that fell down in the seat. You're going to find that lost washer that you couldn't seem to find, you know, when you're putting the airplane together. You got to go through and find all that stuff because the first time you get upside down, it's all going to come clanking around and hit you in the back of the head. What Cheetos. Else? Yeah, Cheetos. There you go. They so, get me every time. What else do you guys do to kind of get the airplane ready? Well, I, I tend to do a, a you know, pretty thorough uh, pre-flight to make sure that, you know, all my... Uh, Although you should be doing it every time, but all my controls are, all the cotter pins are in. I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to have anything coming loose on me because I'm going to actually be throwing things around quite a bit. Um, but you're right. I mean, the the the, in, the interior of the cockpit has to be uh, sterile, otherwise you're going to see it. Well, Mark and I don't have that problem because we're we're so precise. Everything stays <laughs> in 1G. 
<laughs> you know, I have been working on my uh, my skill set to keep a one G maneuvers all the time, but I'm not as good as you guys. Hey, it's really hard to do a one G vertical stall turn. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Uh, you just avoid the vertical stall turn. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually gotten into those. Jeff kind of turned me onto them, and I've really enjoyed them. Oh, they're yeah, they're, they're kind of fun. I... The whole zero G thing is like, wow, that's kind of neat. Yeah, every time I do one, though, my uh, GPS logs it as a landing because it's like zero airspeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's your bonus right there. <laughs> okay, well, I rotate at thirty, so it doesn't do that to me. So one of Another... the things. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say another FAR that we might want to cover here is uh, uh, the parachute thing. Um, yeah, ninety-one three hundred seven. Parachutes are not required if you are doing aerobatics by yourself, uh, and they are only required if there's uh, more than one person in the aircraft, and then everybody has to have a parachute on. Unless not a problem in a Sonex, but. Unless, Mark, you're an instructor giving a, uh, instructor instruction, for example, spins. Correct. For a rating. Yeah. For a rating, yes. Okay, so, so we can all agree that the, uh, the wording of the FARs sometimes is a little bit misleading. But the accepted definition is if you're by yourself, you don't need it. But what do you guys think? Is it a good idea or is it a sort of a waste of time? You know, I, I bought a parachute to do my phase one. And uh, I used it during my uh, my phase one aerobatic uh, testing. I don't know if you can get out of the plane if you had a problem. If the wing folded up, and that'd be the only reason that you'd ever want to bail out is that the wing folded up. Is my my point of view. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you get out of the plane. And after I got done with phase one, uh, I got tired of recertifying the parachute and ended up selling it. I did the same thing. I bought a, uh, didn't buy one. I actually borrowed a parachute for my uh, phase one. Uh, and uh, then I, I purchased a used parachute uh, after that. So I still wear one. I figure at least it gives me something to do on the way down uh, to try to get out of the airplane or, you know, try to get under the parachute canopy, that kind of thing. So Yeah, it, it definitely keep your... Uh keep your activity up instead of just kind of rolling over and saying, well, I'll just do my Hail Marys and uh, (laughs) whatever's going to happen. That's what I figure. But John, you're right though. The, the canopy could be a major challenge. So if you're going to wear a shoot, you really ought to think about how am I going to get out of this thing? What might go wrong? What might I have to think about really, really quick in, in a pinch and do a little bit of rehearsal on getting the canopy open and getting out well, let's say, say you're at 4,000 feet AGL and you fold the wing up and you're coming down. You're going to be spinning probably. Um, if you have a tip over canopy, if it's spinning the right way, that'll be really helpful. If it's spinning the wrong way, you ain't going to get it open. I have a tip back canopy and I always thought, well, I could just pop the, the latches and the canopy's going to separate. Well, if I don't have enough flow over the the airframe, it ain't going to separate, and I'm just going to be riding that thing down trying to beat my way out of it. It's just a personal preference. I like to say I just like to have something to do on the way down. Well, yeah, the only the, the other thing that I, I didn't like about the parachute was it pushed me forward about three inches, and so I was flying center stick, and 
Um, I didn't like the position. It wasn't my natural flying position. I had to take the, the cushions out of the airplane to get it to fit properly. So it just didn't feel comfortable. Yeah. And the, the seatbelts didn't fit right either with the parachute. Mark, what type of shoot are you wearing? Is it, does it wrap around your back and butt, or is it a seat cushion? Yes. Or what? It's a, it, it wraps around. It's on my back, and I sit on it as well. So it's really it. thin then? Yes. Yeah, I would say that's probably about the only style that you're really going to be happy with in a Sonics. It is a little tight. Yeah. It uh, does push me forward a little bit, but I guess I've gotten used to the position. And, uh, and I fly, you know, aerobatics from the center uh, with my feet on the outside rudder pedals. Uh, I, in fact, I don't like to do aerobatics from the left side or the right side. It doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I roll, I think, right really well from my left seat, but I definitely can't roll it left from my left seat. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the other thing um, that you ought to think about is your headset. Um, depending on the type of headset you have, again, especially if you're sitting off to, to one side and not in the middle, uh, you might you might be banging into the cockpit as you're moving your head around to look out, you know, one wing or the other, or as the, uh, the forces kind of spin you around a little bit. Um, I think you just want to make sure that the headset is going to stay on your head. Uh, some of the bigger, older um, light speeds had really low clamping pressure, and they would they would flop all over the place. So you don't need the distraction of your headset coming off in the middle of something. Nor do you want a, a steel band scraping into the inside of your cockpit, uh, distracting you while you're trying to complete a maneuver. Well, you're bringing up a good point about the restraint system in the Sonics, too, Jeff. Um, it's not really built for holding you down in an aerobatic maneuver. Um, it kind of lets you lift up. No matter how tight you make the seatbelt, especially if you're sitting center seat with the seatbelts from the outside holding you, um, there's a definite lift up, and you can float off the seat a bit. Uh, not 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 enough to make you lose control, but it's enough to um, to let you feel like you're swimming around the cockpit. Yeah, it gets your attention. And I, I've been working on a solution for my plane to have some sort of a crotch strap to uh, hold me down, but I cannot figure out how to tie that down onto the the seat pan. So I'm waiting for someone else to figure it out. Let me know. To a five-point instead of a four-point. Right. Well, another thing I think you want to think of is um, you want to make sure that your your engine is ready to go. You, you don't need to be fighting a, a weird mixture of effect or um, the engine's not cooling well when you're trying to get out there and, and run it hard. Um, you just want to make sure the engine is running perfect before you get out there and, and throw it around. And then your fuel tank, uh, depending on your fuel vent, you may, uh, you may have some fuel sloshing around, and um, you want to make sure that you're not tossing fuel out of your vent in some sort of temporary negative G situation and have that come back and splash on your canopy and cause some crazing. Have you guys had any problem with fuel venting? Do you ever get a whiff of fuel in, in a maneuver? Uh, no, I, my, my fuel vents... Uh, from the tank under the plane. And so even if I go inverted in negative G, any, um, when I get back upright, you know, if, it, if it's squirting anything out, it's squirting out underneath, underneath the plane. 
That's the way mine is. It, it vents out the bottom. Now, I have had a GoPro mounted to my belly. And when I, you know, when I go inverted, especially uh, negative G, uh, when I go back upright, the GoPro would get covered in oil when I would come back upright with a little bit of puff of oil coming out of the, uh, the oil uh, breather. And you're not running a, a separator or a catch bottle or anything. It's just a straight vent, right? Actually, I am running the Sonics aerobatic um, separator. Oh, so you but are getting a little bit even past that? Even past that, yeah. Okay. Mark, how about you? Have you seen any kind of oil can, oil thrown overboard during aerobatics? Yes. Uh, I, uh, I have a uh, catch bottle, only, you know, just a catch bottle in between the uh, uh, engine and the... Uh, belly and i still get a little bit of oil on the belly okay so when you say a little bit are you are you using just an ounce or two or are you using like a quarter of a quart oh no it's it's like uh, half an ounce or something like that yeah it's okay. not much at all so, so just trace yeah. amounts during aerobatics right but it, okay. it, you know seeing the gopro it even though it's a mist you know that that uh, half an ounce is quite a quite pre- predominant, and it dirties your the belly quite a bit. Yes, yeah, uh, I've had similar experiences. I just wanted to see if you guys had a, you know, the same type of of oil issue. I it's not even really an issue. It's just um it's just something to be aware of. For me, it's more about the hassle of make sure I get in there and clean it up before it you know sticks dirt to it. Right. Okay. Well, um, a couple other things uh, on the. Uh, on the airplane prep, um, I think that you need to go through and review your, your paperwork, make sure that your plane is, is legal to go fly aerobatics. And in legal, your operating limits have to have the, the statement in there allowing aerobatic flight. Uh, your logbooks have to be complete and filled out with your, um, your maneuvers that are allowed uh, and demonstrated during phase one. Um, and then you ought to make sure that you know, nothing's expired. You, your BFR, your medical, the, the annual inspection, none of that stuff is expired on the paperwork side. And then lastly, maybe check your insurance policy and make sure that there's no specifications that you have to, to live by in your insurance policy. Did I miss anything on the paperwork, guys? Well, I have a question for Mark. I know we had discussed this previously in another episode. <clears throat> when you listed aerobatics uh, for your certification when you signed off, Mark, yes. did you list each individual maneuver, or did you do something simple like loops, rolls, and spins, and just call it good with that? I, I listed the maneuvers that I tested in, you know, phase one, and that was loops, rolls, spins, uh, reverse Cubanate, and Lazy 8s and Shondells, of course. Yeah, that sounds like what most of us did, too, but we were just wondering whether you could do something more generic and, like I said, just simple loops, rolls, and spins and combinations thereof pretty much covered. Right. I'm sure you, you could. Know, but, yeah. and, and, Gary, I kind of did that with mine. Um, in my operating limitations, it says basic aerobatics, and I, I basically stated that I tested basic aerobatics. So I didn't, I didn't go down to the specific maneuvers just what the operating limitations were limiting to. Mm. Okay, well, the the last thing is um, Sonics publishes some information on aerobatic weight limit and CG limit. And so they list a 950-pound aerobatic weight limit, uh, and that's lower than the normal 1050 or 1100-pound 
gross weight. Um, and they also limit the CG range to a little bit narrower uh, range. So the normal range is 20 to 32% mean aerodynamic cord. Well, they, they restrict that to the kind of the center region of that, so 23 to 29%. And I think that's just to make sure that you don't get any sort of surprises, the loads don't build up on surfaces, and make sure you have good margin for recovery and you're not going to break something. So before you do aerobatics, I think you, you need to, to look at your weight and balance spreadsheet, plug in all your numbers, and just see if you're going to fall comfortably within the CG limits for aerobatics or if you're going to have something that's going to maybe cause you to, to, to have to look a little closer at it. And more likely, it'll be a tail-heavy condition, especially with a, you know, a, maybe like a YX where they, they often, John, I think you were saying, are a little bit further back in the, in the CG range anyway. Well, mine is. I don't know if it's all YXs. Um, and also, I think those, uh, those limits pretty much dictate that you're going to be doing aerobatics solo. And never with the passenger. Yeah, that's what I consider it. Yeah, I think the the point is just um, run through your own weight and balance. Um, probably there will be no problem, but don't take our word for it. Go pull out your chart and run your numbers and make sure. That's why I think you need to have uh, instruction in a different type type of aircraft if you haven't done aerobatics before. Um, you know, because that nose low attitude, you accelerate very quickly, and you can easily over G the aircraft in your pullout if you uh, if you're not used to that and don't realize what you've done with your throttle or anything. Yeah. So we we kind of hit on many of these um, what what maneuvers we consider appropriate, but let's just run down the list. Um, so Mark, I'll just want you start us off. What, what do you think that the appropriate maneuvers and maybe the ones that are not appropriate for a Sonics are? Well, the first one that comes to mind not a, that I consider to be not appropriate for a Sonics is snap roll. Uh, anything that, uh, you know, a high speed snap the stick back and snap roll, I don't think that's a good idea in the Sonics. And that's, but that's just my personal preference. Doesn't mean it wouldn't do it. Uh, but, uh, I think you're putting a lot of stress on the aircraft when you do that. Um, the things that I do, I generally, uh, I do loops and rolls and spins. And like I said, the reverse Cuban eight, uh, in combinations of those things, I like to put, uh, a roll to a loop to a roll the other way, uh, to a Shondell and then spin. So some type of a combinations, uh, you know, making the, uh, uh, making it a, almost like an aerobatic routine type of a thing. So I stay pretty much positive G the entire time. Uh, I, I've never seen zero G on my aircraft. I just keep it all positive. Okay, and Gary, uh, with a little bit lower-powered uh, aircraft, what do you think the... Um what do you think the appropriate maneuvers are in, a, in an AeroV-powered Sonics? Um, I, I certainly agree with all those. I find it a little bit easier to do a reverse Cuban than a, than a regular Cuban uh, with yes. my AeroV. Uh, uh, an Immelman is pretty tough to do. Um, I certainly got to start kind of downhill. So it's not, you know, I have to say, too, most of the aerobatics I do are not true, 
you know, you know, sportsman class or even in competitive aerobatics, I just find that the energy management of the sodics just won't allow me to do that, and the roll rates is fairly slow as well. But but you can pretty much knock most of that stuff off. You know, trying to get a true hammerhead out of this thing is a little tough as well. Uh, I can almost get there sometimes, but you know, I'll easily hit zero g. Uh, to a transient, a uh, little bit negative G sometimes, trying to do something like that as well. Okay. John, anything else that we didn't already talk about? Do you do full cubinates in yours? I'll do a few. I've, I've done a few uh, reverse cubinates. Um, the only thing that I try to avoid is anything negative G, uh, although, you know, sometimes you fall into those, and those are a little discerning. Um you know, zero G stuff. I I really like. I love spins. Um, I've gotten my my way X into a, a an inverted spin, falling out of a Immelman, and uh, the, the plane responds really well to it. Uh, but it is a bit disconcerting. Um, you know, throwing the plane up like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about spins, Mark. Uh, how far have you gone into? Uh... I'm sure you've gone past just incipient spins. Yes, I uh, uh, I tested to uh, three uh, spin uh, rotations, uh, but I normally do uh, one and a half or two when I just go out for fun. No, I've, I've progressed I, all I the way to at least six thing. or seven, and wow. I find that in a, uh, um, in a in a full spin, I find the aircraft to be very very stable. It doesn't seem to wallow. It doesn't pitch buck it, it breaks very quickly when you go for recovery uh, so I, I was really pleased with the spin curve you've gotten it to six on the oh, spins yes. yeah wow. it's on youtube okay. yeah I've, I've done the same thing i've done six turn spins in mine and the first Only couple yeah the first couple you know it it, it starts to accelerate but after about the third it really kind of just stabilizes and it's very it's very predictable and it pops right out okay i, I was always afraid to go over three so i just pull it out of three well, it does spin really well. The nose is down very low uh, from a normal spin injury, and uh, it comes out very quickly. That, that I will say, even the WAX comes out um, with just a little bit of neutral ru- or a neutral stick and a little bit of opposite rudder, it comes right back out. Right. You know, we talked about uh, Cuban eights. Reverse Cuban eights are, are probably my favorite maneuver to do. They're just they're, they're easy and they're so much fun. But um, if you try to fly a full cubinate, uh, it really starts to kind of become taxing for the second half because you're getting kind of low on energy, and you really got to dive to get that second piece of the eight. And I find that they're just not all that much fun, and so I, I don't do them very often at all. I, you know, I think that uh, the Sonics is great for recreational aerobatics, but when I read uh, about uh, contest aerobatics and so forth, I don't think the Sonics, uh, at least in my opinion, is not really uh, set up well for that. Um, the uh, you know, so I I talk when I talk about aerobatics, I think recreational. I like to see the world go around and and uh, uh, I the IAC has a term they call uh, barnstormer loops, and that's definitely what I do. I will pull up, go over the top. But I'm sure it looks like a, a huge egg from the side because I'm kind of, as I come up over the top, the nose comes down. 
uh, and uh, I've never, you know, I don't pull very many G's as I pull up, and I don't pull very many as I come out. Uh, so it's uh, not a, a very good score if I was in an aerobatic contest. And yeah, I'm sure mine looks the same too. I probably pull about three and a half G's on the entry and exit, and I'll get close to zero at the top just to try to make it a little bit more uh, round instead of L-shaped. But most time, it's just a yank and bank and pull and feel some G's and some unusual attitudes. Right. And don't worry so much about points. Right. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think about the that kind of a contest thing. And and people say, well, what kind of role do you do? I uh, I now have a term, uh, Bob Hoover aileron roll is what I do. I pull the nose up a little bit, roll at 1G, and I come out a little bit nose low. That would not score well at all in a contest, but it satisfies my need to see the world go around. And if you do it right... Sure, it Mark, did you go like with the acro ailerons or just standard? I have standard ailerons. Yeah, I do too. It's It's fairly slow on the roll. And I have acro ailerons. Did you think ever I, fly with the uh, uh, other standards? Yes, I have flown <clears throat> um, Mike Needenthal's. Uh, I did aerobatics in his, and he has the standard ones. And what I found was about a 90 degree per second roll rate with the standard ailerons, and I get about 120 degree per second uh, roll rate with the acro. That might so it's be a little upgrade. quicker. Yeah, yeah. And also, I've noticed with the acro is it takes almost two hands on the stick to complete to do a full throw mm-hmm. of the uh, the aileron throw. Where the uh, the standard aileron is, you can do it with one hand. Jeff, you have acro ailerons, right? I, I do. Yeah, and I actually really like the feel of the acro ailerons. Um, I, uh, I've, I've done them both and I just, I enjoy the feel of the, of the bigger aileron, but you're right at higher speeds and at those full deflections, it does take a pretty good grip on it. Just that last 10 degrees to, you know, really push it over. But, uh, boy, it really does. It rolls like an RV. It's, it's quite fun. Yeah. Let's uh, l- let's talk a little bit about the uh, the stall characteristics. So we talked about the need to go out and get comfortable in stalls, but let's just refresh everybody on what they can expect in their Sonics when they go out and fly stalls. Well, I think we need to talk about are you flying it with a, a dirty or clean? I mean, if you're doing aerobatics, you're going to be flying it clean, not with the the flaps out because it it does um, fly a lot or it stalls a lot differently. Um, I think with, under full flaps, you know, with a, a landing stall or um, you know type situation. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you're certainly going to want to go get comfortable <clears throat> with uh, full flaps and you know doing the base to final turn scenario, but that's not really what we're talking about for aerobatics. We're talking about more accelerated and turning stalls and um, secondary stall when you're pulling out of a out of a loop gone wrong or something like that. So how's that going to feel? Well, if you if you've got a lot of uh, speed and you you know are really yanking and banking that stick, and you get into an accelerated stall, the shutter is really quite noticeable. It the the wing will let you know that it is stalling quickly. And the shutter is there, and then it'll break quite quickly. Versus a 
real uh, stable, um, slow entry into a, a stall like you would normally do during, uh, you know, your flight review or, or just uh, playing on the edge of the envelope. Yeah, that's a good point because when you sneak up on it, like uh, in a practice stall scenario, and you you know you're decelerating extremely slowly, um, that that really is uh, is not the type of warning that you're going to get when you're out there maneuvering the airplane. Uh, you're right. No, you, you don't you don't get that shutter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's a it's a definite stick shutter, and you you'll be a little alarmed when you first do a, for your first accelerated stall on how much the plane really talks to you. So when you're coming out of a loop, if you pull too hard, will you feel it shudder a little bit? Oh, definitely. I think. Mark, how about uh, you? Yeah, if I mean, as I'm coming over the top of my loop, you know, uh, uh, I'm probably doing 50 or something like that. And I normally feel a little bit of tickle uh, as I'm coming over the, uh, over the top. And then I just, uh, of course, reduce the uh, power. Uh, as the nose comes down, and uh, I haven't had any uh, problems with uh, stalls coming out of a loop, but but definitely if you pull pull too hard at the top, yes, I I can you can feel that little shudder. And it's important that you get the training to be able to recognize it for what it is, and that's the wing talking to you. Oh, definitely. That's where the un- unusual attitude training comes in is is recognizing what an accelerated stall is versus no, you know, normal f- slow flight versus just a typical uh, slow flight stall. And I think probably the more important part is when you're at the top of the loop upside down and still realizing that it's easy to stall in that attitude. That's right. Yep, I learned that on my first loop. Fell out of it and into an inverted spin. I was just going to mention in fighters, uh, we could stall the aircraft at 400 knots if you're pulling hard enough. So if you have enough G on the aircraft, it would stall at 400, where the normal stall at 1G might be 120. So you got to be pulling a lot of G, but uh, you can definitely stall it at higher speeds. Well, yeah, you know, I was always told you G-lock in Sonics, though. Yeah, no G-lock there. Although I do get nauseous if I'm really yanking and banking and pulling a lot of G's. That's just too many cookies. (laughs) (laughs) It's just getting old like you. (laughs) That's why you do aerobatics on the way to breakfast and not on the way back. (laughs) You know, there's one other scenario that that I'm reminded of. Uh, We we just kind of touched on them, uh, split S's, you know, where you're flying level and you roll it inverted and you kind of pull out the bottom for a half loop. Um, that's one area where you're already kind of slow anyway. And when you are, you know, nose down, aiming straight at the ground, it's kind of easy to pull a little too hard on that. And that's the, exactly what you don't want to happen. You're pointed straight down at the ground, you pull too hard, you go into that secondary stall and you flip over into a spin. That's one of those that can go wrong pretty quick if you're not paying attention. And that, yeah. that's where it's really beneficial to have 4,000 feet between you and the ground. So you don't have to be nervous about it. Yeah. yeah, well, you can figure it out by the time you get to 2,000 feet. <laughs> okay, so uh, spin recovery. Um, what? Uh, talk, talk about that, Mark. Just, just kind of talk us through. It's very conventional, but 
for people that have not actually spun their Sonics as yet, talk us through spin recovery. Well, you'd uh, you know check the throttle in idle, ailerons uh, to neutral. Uh, then you want rudder full opposite direction of the spin. So you need to be looking out the front of the aircraft to determine which way you're spinning. If you're looking out at the wingtip or something, I think it can be kind of disorienting. You need to be looking out the front, direction of spin, full opposite rudder, and a quarter turn after that, move the stick briskly forward. I find that if I just relax a little bit of back pressure in the Sonex, it is, it's out uh, as soon as I do that. And then when the rotation stops, neutralize the rudder and uh, smoothly recover from the dive. So in, in spin recovery, what do you think the, um, the pitfalls might be? What might people do wrong that they ought to kind of be mindful of? I think, it's, uh, I think you need to uh, apply the opposite rudder first because if you don't, it'll, it will come out, but it'll, you'll be uh, in, a, in a big yaw situation. It's very uncomfortable. Probably wouldn't hurt anything, but be uncomfortable. So you uh, need I to... Think, go ahead. I think someone who's not done spin training or actually done a spin, if they react by pulling uh, back on the stick... You're just exasperating the problem and keeping yourself in the spin. And one of the things I learned in spin training was neutralize the stick. Let go of it if you have to. And then use your feet to get out of the spin, not the, not the stick. Yeah, trying to steer out of the spin is not going to work. The stick isn't going to help you. It's your, it's your feet. There's, yeah. You know, Sonex has a little uh, uh, blurb in their uh, handbook. Uh, that uh, during a prolonged spin, the engine may uh, quit, but spin recovery will not be affected. That's never happened to me. Has it happened to anybody else? I've never no. had it quit. No, not. I've always, I've always pulled throttle, and so, and you know, I, I've never noticed it. Yeah, I haven't either. Mark, you talk a lot about you know doing the traditional pair of the power ailerons, rudder, elevator. You know, I've, I don't know if, for some reason, I've always just kind of combined things, I think. When I go to do the recovery, of course, I'm pulling the power, aileron's neutral, but I'm kind of doing the, releasing the pressure simultaneously as I'm doing the, the rudder to, to break out of the spins. Do you see mm -hmm. any problem with that? No, I don't. To hold your plane into a spin, you guys have done six, seven turns. You've got to hold that stick up into your belly the whole time, don't you? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, got to keep it. Yeah, back keep it keep in the, the, the rudder pedal floored, or it will. Yeah, because that, right that's out the, the only thing I've done. Is if I if I go into an insipid spin, um, if I don't hold that rudder and try to keep it in the spin, especially with a you know full aileron or full uh, rudder throw, it won't stay in there. It'll it'll want to come back out. Sure, it does. But every airplane is going to be a little different. Some of them, you are going to have to briskly move the stick forward to break the, the stall and, and, and stop the spin. Uh, the Sonics, like you say, it's more of just a relax, uh, very well-mannered in that respect. Yeah, it's... And the uh, one time I got myself into an uh, inadvertent inverted spin, um, it was the same, same process. I just relaxed everything, and, and things kind of went... You know, zero G for a couple of turns, and then they came right back out. Or were you trying to figure out how to open the canopy so you could get out? And by the time you figured no, it out, the plane recovered. 
<laughs> the Cheetos were flying around, and I was, um, you know, trying to f- catch a couple. <laughs> okay, uh, Mark, there's something I, I, I was thinking about. So if, if you were in a spin, and you, um, you brought the power back to idle, and you recovered, uh, you broke the rotation, but you were sort of still nose-low diving at the ground, about how long would it take before you built up enough airspeed where you were getting really worried? Are we talking about a half a second, a couple of seconds, a long time? What do you think? How fast do you build speed? Well, I think, uh, you know, in that nose-low situation, you build speed pretty fast, uh, usually when I'm recovering, but I'm I'm trying to minimize my G-load. So, you know, I'm not pulling over two Gs in the recovery. Uh, and the speed's coming up to uh, 130, 140 uh, pretty fast. Uh, I'd say one or two seconds. Maybe this, that's not it. Maybe it's three or four. Yeah. yeah. And this is where the higher VNE uh, of the Sonics really helps out. It's because you've got a little bit of room to work with. You do this in a, in a 150. Um, by the time you, you mishandle the spin recovery, you're pushing red line just right now. Yes. And I do them with my students in a 150. But I, I do find that the Sonex is, uh, it recovers like a 150 does. Um, it's not. Uh, I would agree, too, because I had a 150 and would spin it, and it, it, it was exactly the same feeling. Yeah. Let's talk about entry speeds. Um, when we talk about loops, rolls, um, half cubans, what are we What are we going to use as a good uh, entry speed for these common maneuvers? Well, uh, I use uh, 160 knots for my uh, for my loop, uh, or not knots. Excuse me, miles per hour. 160 miles per hour uh, for the loop, and I generally do my uh, rolls at 150. You, could, I've experimented with doing them at diff, at uh, slower speeds, and it's certainly possible. But I just find that that uh, uh, those work well for me. And that allows you to do nice, easy Gs, too, because you've got plenty of energy. Yes. Gary, uh, you're at the other end. Uh, what do you use as your entry speeds? I wish I could get up to 160. I'm thinking i got to go out there and wash and wax my plane to make it go that fast. <laughs> um, typically for me, though, when I'm doing loops, I try to go for 140 to 145 for my entry. But then again, I pull 3.5 Gs. Um, zero it out of the top, about another three, three and a half at the bottom of the loop. Uh, for rolls, I can get by with 125 or so, but again, with my nine acro ailerons, it's really slow, significant altitude loss, and it, you really kind of have to work at it a little bit. And I, I try to keep mine right in the at the top of the maneuvering speed at about 135, um, which probably explains why I fall out of the top of my loops more than I don't. Yeah, I kind of do the same thing. I use 130 as a good entry speed for a lot of mine. Um, I'll do rolls down to 110, and it'll it'll do that at as low as as 100. At 110, it's getting a little sloppy, but it'll still do it. And I'll do 130 going into a loop, and I'll pull three Gs, and it and it'll fly through that okay. So I think that um, there's a wide speed range that'll work. Uh, maybe uh, a, a little more is better. It gives you a little more to work with. Yeah, I would certainly say that, you know, the faster you can enter these, these maneuvers, the better your energy management, the easier it's going to handle for you. I like the, uh, you know, I like the faster speeds, but then again, uh, I can do a loop with uh, two Gs. So 
two G's up and two G's at the uh, recovery. And, uh, you know, that, that works just fine with a little bit of a little bit of burble over the top. Mm -hmm. The only exception to all this is, um, you know, that split S again, you want to be going slow, the slower, the better, you know, enough to get that half roll to to inverted. Uh, you definitely do not want to be building a lot of speed, uh, pulling out the bottom. Yeah, I use, uh, I use, uh, pull the nose up about uh, 20 high, 20 degrees high, roll at 80 for the split S, and go to idle. All right, what other uh, little techniques um, should we talk about, things that just make them go a little easier? Uh, you talked about pitching up 10 or 20 degrees. What maneuvers do you kind of start by pitching the nose up a little? Well, for me, I, uh, I do that with my rolls. And I do that with the uh, split S or the uh, reverse Cuban. Yeah, both aileron rolls and uh, barrel rolls all pitch up just to keep the uh, the horizon level as you're going over. Now, when you speak of rolls, you know, I find that with my, my arrow V, the way the rotation is, I, I much prefer to roll to the right because uh, every little bit of help I can get with the engine torque especially with my ailerons being non-accurate, it just makes it a little bit easier. I just think it's a little bit slower when I try to go with the rotation. It, it definitely, on, on the Jabiru, I go right because the engine's rotating the opposite direction. And it just seems more natural. Going left seems like I'm fighting it. Yeah, you get the same thing on a spin entry. Um, when you're using the, the torque and all that from the, from the engine, um, it, it enters into the spin easier one direction than the other. So, yeah, if you if you if you try them both ways, you'll you'll pretty quickly figure out which way it goes in easier. Goes in. I think you got a good point there. It goes in easier, but after you get into it, it's the same. Right. Right. Okay. Well, something I've been experimenting with lately. Um, when I'm doing rolls, uh, I'll do the same thing. I'll pull up ten or twenty degrees to kind of start the roll. But um, when I'm when I'm inverted, I've been experimenting with just a very light push to kind of help hold the nose closer to the horizon. So it's not a pure 1G all the way around. And what I found is that um, it, just a little bit of push, you're not even you're not even hitting 0G. You're just hitting like, like a reduced G, like a half a G. That little bit of a push while you're upside down really helps out a lot, really makes it a lot easier to kind of hold the plane uh, where it needs to be. So if you haven't tried that, that might be worth it going out and experimenting with. I've, I was really pleasantly surprised. But that only yeah, knocks right. loose the uh, the small Cheetos, not the big ones. <laughs> well, it's not a perfect technique. I'll admit that. <laughs> um, another thing, uh, you know, all this um, low altitude or low airspeed stuff. You know, you're running the engine hard. You're going slow. Your engine may heat up on you after a series of these maneuvers. So periodically, just uh, take a little break, um, let the engine cool off, gather your wits, and think about what you want to do next. Um, it's not good to get surprised when you're having a great time and you look over at your engine monitor and it's screaming at you because you've been heating the engine up with all this fun you've been having. You know, one of the things that my aerobatic instructor did was we went out and did a lot of inverted spins and really got me nauseous to the point where I was... Uh, to the almost incapacitated and I think his purpose was to get me to a point where I was uh, not feeling very well and then we had to go do touch and goes 
And so it was like, okay, you're going out here, you're yanking and banking, you're getting yourself really nauseous. Can you still land the plane? And well, I that was kind of valuable. Yeah, better to do that in a controlled setting so you have that kind of in your skill set rather than you figure it out the hard way by yourself. Yeah, to come into your landing zone and, and not, you know, and feeling very bad. Yeah. Mark, there were two things you brought up uh, earlier. One was uh, proper throttle use and then uh, where you're going to be looking in these various maneuvers because you may not always be looking at the horizon. Uh, I'd like you just to elaborate on both of those points. The Okay. Um, well, I find that anytime the nose is down on the Sonics, being a relatively clean aircraft, you're going to be accelerating. That airspeed is going to be coming up unless you're pulling a lot of, of a G. And even then, uh, at least in my experience, you're going to be accelerating anyway. So that throttle, when the nose is down below the horizon, uh, you probably need to be thinking about throttling back. And that may just be a jabberoo thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're coming over the top of the loop, that using the throttle, bringing it back is going to be important. Um, uh, let's see, other time, you know, spin recovery, definitely probably want to enter it with the throttle in idle, but uh, and recover with the throttle in idle as well because uh, you're pretty nose low. As far as where you're looking, you know, for a uh, aileron roll, you want to look out the front of the aircraft. Again, I find it disorienting to look at the wingtips as you're rolling. You kind of get wh which way is the roll going and so forth. So look out the front of the aircraft. Uh, and in a loop, uh, all aerobatic instructors are going to tell you once you lose sight of the horizon with the nose high, look at the wingtip now and watch that wingtip as you go over the top. And you can keep the wings level after you get used to where that uh, horizon's supposed to be. Uh, that, and then as your nose comes back down through the uh, horizon, of course, then you're looking out the front again. Or through the uh, bottom, then you're looking out the front again. Yeah, something else that comes to mind. When you're in your spin, when the spin is fully developed, um, you can't really tell whether your nose is perfectly straight down or whether you're at an angle. or All you see is just a face full of ground, and that can be a little disorienting, too. Um, I think it, it probably really doesn't matter. Once you've done it a couple of times, you're going to recover without a problem. But um, I think maybe just preparing yourself for that face full of ground in the middle of that maneuver is a good idea. Right. Well, I might have to speak a little bit differently on a couple of things with the AeroV. Uh, especially when we talk about power management. Yeah, for spins and all that stuff, I kind of agree with you. I find that, though, in loops, uh, I originally started pulling power uh, as you start to come down the back side of that, worrying about the speeds. Um, but then I had trouble getting back uphill again if I wanted to go on to my next maneuver. So with my little AeroV, I, I will typically just leave the thing firewalled. Uh, that way I can build downhill momentum uh, to, to translate into my next maneuver, especially if I need to gain a little bit more altitude and get set up. Do you find that you lose any uh, altitude in a loop? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll typically lose 100, 200 feet in a loop. Uh, but again, like I said, if, if, if that's all I'm going to do and I just want to take life easy, sure, you can pull the power back. But if I want to try to go back uphill again and say maybe go into a, a reverse cubinate or something like that, I need kind of all the downhill momentum I can get to translate into my next altitude maneuver. Right. 
I've heard of others that just keep full throttle on throughout the whole loop. Um, I haven't done that, but... Um, yeah, I went and did some transition training, too, in a pit, and I was talking to the guy, and he says, you know, it's a constant speed for one thing anyway, and he says, no, just leave a firewall and just go ahead and do everything. And it worked out fine in the pits, too, to do it. So, I think the key is to transition from from one thing to another. If you're, if you're not going to be transitioning and you're going to be dragging out your recoveries and, and slower, you're going to have to manage that, that building of airspeed a lot more than if you're already you're kind of geared for another, another maneuver and you're just flowing one right into the other. I guess I, I've gotten into kind of a habit of after I enter the maneuver, I pull the throttle and wait until I finish the maneuver and then add it again. Um, I'm not sure that's actually the correct way to do it, but I think it's the safest. Do you do it in rolls as well? Yeah, even in a roll, I'll I'll pull up and then just pull back throttle. It's almost like second nature. Hmm. I haven't tried that. Uh, I just leave my power alone. All right, well, let's wrap this up with uh, some advice to anybody that wants to kind of get out there and explore some aerobatics. Um, Mark, I'll, I'll kick it over to you first. Uh, get some good training. Really be trained in your Sonax because of the aerobatic uh, gross weight limit. So you're going to have to find another aircraft uh, and uh, in, enjoy the experience because uh, uh, Sonax is a great little aerobatic airplane as long as you're not trying to do uh, an IAC contest, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Gary, what do you think? What's your advice? Well, like we first talked, you know, just get really comfortable with the aircraft itself and the slow slow flight regime and basic stalls, learning to listen to it and, and feel what it feels like when it's getting ready to break on you. Um, you know, and then certainly, you know, look around, find, you can almost find some guy that's got even a, even a 152 Aerobat or something like that, or in my case, I went and did some uh, Satabria work and then the pits work, and <clears throat> not they don't always equate to, to the Sonics, but... You know, at least you get through some of the basic maneuvers and you're with somebody while you're upside down, perhaps for the first time, or if you're doing inverted spins or even just regular spins for that for that matter. <clears throat> they can get to be a pretty exciting. Uh, Mark, to let you know, I once was doing uh, spins and training a, a private pilot student. He was one of the few that wanted to do them. And so we went up pretty high in South Florida and got into the spin. But, you know, when he started to break it, he, he really pushed forward on that yoke. Uh, this guy was like six two or something like that. He was draped all on top of that yoke with his legs. He had pushed so hard, we, you know, we hit the ceilings, and so we're still spinning down. I got to get this guy unwrapped from the yoke, as you know, so we could finally actually recover. So uh, they they can get interesting sometimes. Yes, yes, they can. <laughs> I usually demo first. <laughs> well, I demo too, but you know. When he thinks, well, okay, I got to push forward. Well, he really did. He really pushed forward. That's what you say. Let's let's try that again, but not quite so vigorously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, he did surprisingly. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, advice. I, I took my. Uh, I did actually do some uh, specific uh, unusual attitude training, aerobatic training in a decathlon, and uh, it was, I think the best training I've had um, just on being comfortable with the plane is upside down. It's spinning. And how do you recover? Um, got nauseous as hell. Didn't, you know, really enjoy it, but it was really good training and it, it helped me in everything I've done in my Sonics. 
Yeah, good point. And my thought is uh, make sure you go out and do good, thorough phase one flight testing. Uh, that's where you're really going to get to know your airplane. Make sure you're very comfortable in, in all those different scenarios. Like, like Gary, like you talked about, all your slow flights, your stalls of all varieties, flaps, no flaps, turning, all that. If you do good phase one, that's a great setup for getting comfortable flying aerobatics. Um, do all the things you should be, uh, get your training, and then really kind of think through your various uh, emergency scenarios. You want to do this when you're comfortable and not rushed. You know, where are you going to go if you have a problem? Uh, what might be the things that, that could give you problems when you're out flying? Uh, think through your spin recovery. Think through if you're going to have to get out of the airplane, how am I going to do that? And then go practice it, you know, in the hangar before you go do it. Uh, and then lastly, if you have a GoPro, take it along. Film your flight. It'll help you go back and replay it and analyze what you did right and what you did wrong. And you can use that to kind of critique yourself after the flight. Plus, it's always fun uh, to post on YouTube and let, you know, all of us make fun of you. So <laughs> I know that I, uh, I I get plenty of that. People are always yeah, making Yeah, I, I quit YouTube posting comments. because your comments so i don't do it anymore <laughs> well like i said if you guys want to see what you know uh, protracted spins look like at least on sonics like i said look at my some of my youtube videos and there's some that it will go at least to six or so uh spins i've seen those a, those are great you're gonna you're tempting me to go take away x to do that because they they're not supposed to spin like that we'll see all right well i think we um good conversation I think we covered all the all the key points here. Um, if anybody is listening to this and, and has something they think that we missed, uh, send us a note through the Sonics Builder uh, forum or, or an email. You can go to the website and send us some feedback. Um, and then if you have your own aerobatics videos, I know like Mike Smith out there, he's uh, he's starting to experiment in, in Sonics and his, and he's posting videos. It seems like he's posting one every couple of weeks. So do like Mike's doing and share it with all of us and show us how it's going. So I look forward to kind of seeing some more of those Sonics acro videos out there. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, kind of running through this topic, and hopefully this has kind of demystified the process and given some encouragement to pilots out there that are considering doing some acro but didn't quite know where to get started and maybe were a little bit apprehensive about going out and doing it. So if we've uh, given them the confidence boost to go out there and get some instruction and then get after it in their airplane, great. Then we've uh, accomplished the goal of trying to spread this. Um, I got a couple of quick shout outs here. So we've had some, some good feedback. Uh, so listener, Jim Wolford, uh, he sent an email and he, he asked us to, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, electrical systems and wiring up a Sonics. So that's a great feedback. I think that's a, that's a great topic. So we're going to have to work that into the rotation, uh, electrical systems and wiring. So definitely put that on the list coming up here. And then, uh, Paul LaRue, commented about the discussion we had about leaning our airplanes and said hey i'd be really interesting to hear some very specific experiences leaning the aerocarbon flight how do you do it what are you looking for what kind of performance are you seeing so that'll be another good one to kind of come back to and we'll do a show on on leaning and just our own individual techniques on on how we make it all work so look for those shows coming up here sometime in the in the next couple of months uh anybody else got shout outs not me uh, no, nothing particular. I just hope to run across you, Mark, here on an upcoming event, perhaps Oshkosh again this year. Yeah, I'll be at Oshkosh. Are you, you're in you're in Kansas, so you can come yes. out to our uh, our uh, Colorado fly-in in uh, in May. 
in May, Colorado. What uh, what's the date? Oh, I don't know. It's sometime in May. Okay, well, <laughs> we're gonna get uh, it we'll knocked get it down and we'll get it advertised. And, okay, uh, good. And uh, round up all those other guys. It's only a I don't know. It's only a, a one fuel stop flight for you. So right. oh, easy, yeah. Goodman, Kansas, because good cheap, cheap gas, and and come on in. That'd be fun. I'd lo- I'd love to do that. Unfortunately, I have this job that gets in the way sometimes. Well, if people will just stop having accidents, then uh, you know you'll get some time off, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, good uh, good talking to you guys. I, I appreciate um, taking some time, and and um, you know we'll do this again. Uh, our our next show is going to be episode sixteen, and we're going to talk with David Weber on autopilot. So that ought to be an interesting discussion. We'll kind of go through a couple of options on how to put an autopilot in Sonics and and what it does well and kind of what you could reasonably expect to get out of an autopilot in your Sonics. For this episode, you can find us on uh, on the website at sonicsflight.com. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on uh, iTunes or Google Play or, or whatever other favorite podcast app you have. And if you go to sonicsflight.com slash 15, you can find the show notes. We'll have links to the, the accident, the NTSB docket, all those things that we were referring to. We'll put that right in the show notes, and you can go find it easily. So with that, I want to thank Mark Kingman. Uh, Mark, uh, once again, thanks for spending some time and giving us a little bit of experience coming from a very different perspective in the Sonics community. I think that adds a lot. I, um, I really value your experience and contribution to the topic. So thanks again for that. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed it. And Gary and John, uh, just keep up the flying. Uh, I want to hear all about these uh, these winter flying trips since I'm stuck here in the low clouds. I'm living vicariously through you guys, so you got to help me out here. All right. We'll try to do our best. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. All right, guys. We'll talk to you all later. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. You know, I, I did a little bit of air rescue too, Mark, but I was on the, on the medical side of it rather than the pilot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. there's a guy in the back throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the back yeah. sticking people with needles and doing stuff. That's <laughs> throwing right. up, and blaming you, it on them. He says, I can give you this heart. morphine, but if you're not going to use it, I'm going to take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't want to waste it. Hey, by the way, I think we ought to possibly do a live podcast at Oshkosh at the fire. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be um, fun. You know, bringing a bunch of people and everybody's on their iPhones and Skyping. Yeah. Oh, good. All Let's right. do it.